everybody. Welcome to season two of the Mixmasters podcast. I'm your host, Steve Litcher, and for those not familiar, I'm the touring front of house engineer for Stitched Up Heart. Working with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet an incredible number of really talented people, and I wanted to introduce you to them. I wanted to let you hear their stories and learn from their experiences. This is really your chance to listen in on behind the scenes talk and to learn from some of the best in the business. I have to give a huge shout out to my pal Merritt Goodwin for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's also an extremely talented composer. Give him a follow on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin or on Instagram at Merritt Goodwin Official. Now let's bring up the faders and jump into this episode of Mixmasters Podcast. Welcome to this episode of Mixmasters, where my guests for the day are Logan Beaver and Elmo Artiega. I had the opportunity to meet and work with both Logan and Elmo on the recent Trinity of Terror tour. The three of us, along with Boris from Black Veil Brides, did 30-plus shows over I don't even know how many states, a couple of different countries, and it was a blast. So this was a really fun episode because we got to recap some of our adventures together, talk a little bit about some of our mixing philosophies, and just learn more about what makes each other tick. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Sit back, relax, enjoy it, tell a friend, subscribe, and stay tuned for more episodes of Mixmasters, which are coming soon. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mixmasters. I am joined today by my friends Logan Beaver and Elmo Artiega. And I met Logan and Elmo while on tour with the Trinity of Terror Tour Part 3. That uh, tour has been a pretty successful package. These guys have been out all, pretty much all year. We'll hear a little bit about their year as we get deeper into the podcast. But Guys, it's so great to see you. I want to say thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast, and I hope you all had a great holiday. How have you guys been? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the on the podcast, man. My holiday was great. Spent time with family. Hopefully, yours was the the same. Yeah, no complaints. Pretty quiet. We did. We were supposed to do a couple of things, but Wisconsin got hit by a massive blizzard. So on uh, Christmas Day and the the couple of days beforehand, it was. Uh, negative 20-ish Fahrenheit with uh, wind chills like negative 50. <laughs> so it was, uh, I know Logan, you you live in Pennsylvania, so you get your fair share of cold weather, but Elmo, uh, who lives in San Diego, negative 20 is pretty uh, freaking cold. Yeah, I can't imagine a winter that's actually below 60 degrees, but that's just, that's my bias being from the West Coast, man. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was pretty cold when we were there in San Diego uh, for Trinity. Like I was sort of shocked at how cold it was after the show, I know they had the food truck behind the uh, arena and I, I was going to get a taco, but it was actually a little too chilly to venture out. So that was sort of funny. That part of town can definitely get some surprising amount of wind and it makes it uh, pretty cold at night comparatively to the rest of the city. But yeah, it was a, that was a pretty cold day. It was a quite a cold tour for the majority of that leg, wasn't it? Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, uh, let's not jump into the tour quite yet. I want to uh, introduce people to each of you. And I also want to get to know a little bit more about you because uh, even though we spent a lot of time together, we were usually talking systems or Nintendo switches or how much we liked certain portions of the tour or didn't like certain portions. I didn't really get to learn too much about each of you. So um, Logan, you're on my left on the screen. So I'm going to start with you. Would you mind taking us through a little bit of your history, specifically around music, and how did you get interested in music, 
I know you play some instruments, but uh, what was sort of your musical history, if you will, that eventually brought you to where you are today? If you want to give us like the Reader's Digest version, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, So me and the drummer of Motionless used to be in a band together when we were both in high school. We became mutual friends with some guys who knew the Motionless guys and started hanging out around them. And I started recording bands. I actually, I, I went to college for one day and dropped out because I knew I was going to hate it. And I did, I did hate it. It was horrible. And I was immediately like, yeah, I can't do this. I can't do this. So I dropped out and, uh, start, took all my money and bought recording gear. And so I would just record bands. I rented a shitty little studio that was in a basement and recorded a bunch of bands out of there until I finally got a job mixing, doing front of house. And I was lucky. My first gig was All Stars Tour in 2014, and that was a, you know, like a, a domestic uh, A market tour. So that was really cool. Um, it definitely should not have been there, uh, and it was bad. It was real bad. But they were patient with me, and I got it figured out. And uh, and then yeah, eventually I moved into to doing tech work for Motionless and White. I was like the second guitar tech for a bit, and uh, just stuck around. And when I wasn't with them, I would go and mix other bands front of house and uh, got to do some cool bands along the way there. And then finally it just worked out that they had an opening and I was available and they gave me a try and I've just been there ever since. So I don't want to, I want to ask a couple of questions. One, what was it, what was your degree you were studying towards for that one day? A uh, graphic design, actually. I, uh, I don't know why I did that. I think just guess I thought it was the right move to do because it was my main hobby when I was in high school. Uh, the recording music thing hadn't really hit me until I had graduated. So uh, before then, it was all Photoshop, all graphic design, which I think I was terrible at. It, it, and, you know, and I still have people like, well, you're really good. But when you do something and you know your peers and you're able to be old enough to look and realize like, you know, maybe not. You know, I, I definitely have things that I've made in that that I'm proud of, but not everyone's a good one. So yeah, right right when college started up, the music thing had started getting a little more serious. And yeah, I just took a dive on it and said no more graphic design, at least for a while. Was music always a hobby for you, like as a as a kid? Or did you sort of gravitate your way into it through your interest in graphical design and the arts in general? Uh, actually, I guess in terms of that, the guitar came first. My brother got the Blink-182 self-titled for Christmas one year and I was very young still and, you know, heard the power chords and was like, what is this? And my parents bought me a little, my mom actually bought me a three quarter scale acoustic guitar from first act and it was horrible. And I, I played it a lot. I learned a bunch of Blink songs and, uh, yeah. And then eventually I met Vinny from Motionless. We we went to the same high school in a very small town. So we were like the only kids that were into metal. And I wasn't even into metal at first, but we jammed a lot and then eventually started our own really awful metal band that kind of transitioned us in all this. So maybe if it wasn't for that, maybe the horrible metalcore band was a necessary evil we had to do. Got to pay your dues and uh, put in the time. That's for sure. So then um, you said you you had set up a studio. Talk us through that studio a little bit, if you will. Like, what were you working with and and what type of uh, good stuff did you have going on? I Oh, man, it's crazy. So I, my when I first started, I had a pretty big room at my parents' house. 
they were cool enough to just let me bring bands in there and track. And it was cool. It worked. But then like, I kind of had already done really bad work for all my friends. So I couldn't, there was no one left to do bad work for. So, so I started reaching out to people who weren't my friends and I hated bringing them into my house. You know, you lose track of someone and they're in my kitchen upstairs and like, just couldn't do it anymore. And I found a spot. It was like my, my aunt owned this like old department store in our town that was defunct. Nothing was going on. She was like, I'd rent you the basement for like 250 bucks a month. And I'm, I'm like, I'm in. So I started renting that. And then I was like, every random I could find, get in here, let's record. And it was pretty good. We actually, I actually started getting enough bands that I don't, I wouldn't say I would hire him, but uh, I had a, a friend who was local who was actually the guy who kind of taught me how to record. And I would bring him in and we would, you know, really work through projects, either both on the same project. Sometimes he would do a band in the other room and I would have a band. So, you know, it was pretty good for being 18 with, a, you know, maybe we had between the two of us, like $2,000 of gear, including our guitars. So like, you know, we didn't, we really had a whole lot of nothing and we're, we're doing nothing else. We didn't have another job. We, we all slept in the basement of that studio so much. And yeah, I guess when you don't have the luxury of lots of equipment and things like that, you learn how to make the most with the least amount of stuff. And then that probably paid, paid dividends over time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, Elmo, I'm going to toss the, the ball over to you. How, same question. Uh, what, what age were you when you got interested in music? You know, did you start off in a studio? Uh, do you play any instruments? And how did you end up where you're at today with Ice Nine Kills? So, you know, it, it's 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 not really that surprising, actually, if I think about it. Logan and I have a pretty similar story. I kind of grew up in a musical family. My parents got me involved with music at a really, really early age. And I have an older brother who's seven years older than me that was also um, encouraged to pursue music at a very early age, probably even before I was born. And so I've always known music, got involved with a bunch of different instruments as I was a kid, always had like a curiosity about it. But at around seven or eight years old, I started really kind of feeling, uh, connected to music in a different way, you know, and finding, finding out my own taste in music and stuff like that. I distinctly remember, finding the self-titled Slipknot album that my brother had and thinking, wow, this is a crazy band. And that whole kind of thing propelled me into questioning uh, music production and like how things were made and how did somebody get this idea from their brain into my ears. And that question kind of fueled me through grade school, middle school, high school, that sort of thing. And I met friends, played music in bands and made shitty punk rock, you know, power chord music for a couple of years and always tried to like record demos. And that turned into meeting other people in my local community that had quote unquote recording studios. Right. Um, and so I ended up starting doing audio in like a more of a recording fashion, like trying to figure out how to make an, make an album or make a demo or something like that. I know that there are a few people that got the bug from seeing their first concert. Right. And they, they think, 
what, how did this concert happen? And for me, it was definitely more of a recording studio thing. I started audio stuff like that with like a, a mini, like, I think it was a cassette recorder, like a four track like boss or Roland kind of cassette recorder that my dad had. And then I ended up in like a recording studio that was like a basement, similar to what you were saying, Logan, like a buddy's basement off on the other end of town, something like that. I got into that, like right before I was out of high school though. So while all of my peers in high school were getting their first jobs and whatnot, I was spending all of my free time in that studio. Like you were saying, Logan, you know, like sleeping on the floor and recording any and everybody I could just to kind of figure it out. And uh, forums were also a big thing that were that was popping off at the time. Uh, you know, we didn't really have YouTube and all the other avenues to learn stuff from. So forums were a big go to for me. And it was uh, it was something that was always around. Um, uh, I started working in a professional recording studio, I think about 2012, maybe 2010. And this had like a proper live room and nice microphones and a bunch of cables and like a, a real pro tools hd rig and it was really awesome uh and then some point along the way the bands just stopped coming through the recording studio itself and so i started branching out and saying well how can i take these skills that i have and this thing that i think about and this question that i've never had answered you know how does this how do we get it from the brain to the ears in the best place possible found myself at the at the local concert venues you know looking over the shoulders of the front of house engineers there asking them questions and that kind of shifted my perspective into live audio and that same venue that i learned so much from soma out in san diego i ended up connecting with a bunch of touring bands and that got me onto my first pro tour which looking back wasn't really even that much of a pro tour but it was with signed bands and a booking agent. And that was, you know, more than I could ever even imagine. That was in 2013. No. Yeah. 2013, something like that. 2012, maybe. Um, that was the Attila's party with the devil tour. Mm. And that was uh, a couple of now really close, like homie bands. And ice nine kills was on that tour. Very, very first pro tour that I ever did. We managed to stay in touch over the years. and. At some point in time, there was a, a moment where Motionless and White was on tour and needed some help. And I got a call from Logan's tour manager at the time, Brendan Donahue, to hop on board with them, do some audio work. I think I was, I was doing monitors at that time for Motionless. And then that tour became, they, they invited Ice Nine Kills to do the second leg. And I needed to do, or they needed a front of house rather. So I hopped on board to double dip and do monitors for motionless in front of house for ice nine kills. And I've been with ice nine kills ever since. And I, I love it. That's I think coming from recording and going into the live sound perspective has really kind of, it, it prepared me well for all the stuff that's kind of come along with it. Yeah. If I followed timelines correctly, but did both of you sort of start doing front of house at about the same time? I'm guessing Elmo, you were right around 2015 or so for ice nine. And then Logan, when did you start doing front of house for motionless? 2016 was my first time doing front of house January of 2016 for them anyways. So for, for me, I think it would have been 
2018 I did monitors for motionless, which is would have been that would have been when I started with i9 kills. Um, I used to bounce around a lot of different bands for a number of years. I started doing pro live sound, I guess I could call it that, like actually kind of making strive to make it a job and make it a career at around 2014. Um, and then Ice Nine Kills was 2018 with Motionless and White. So I had about four years of kind of working with a bunch of punk rock, hardcore, metalcore bands, kind of working my way through smaller level touring and grinding. You know, I think I think a lot of a lot of the people that I've met in the last couple of years really are no stranger to the the real grind of touring. You know, it's it can get pretty pretty grueling to go along the whole touring lifestyle, right? Did you do your fair share of van and trailer tours? Oh yeah, man. My first punk rock band, I would do regional tours starting in like 2012 or something like that. DIY stuff, you know, playing in people's houses and whatnot. We bought a, an eight liter van, like not even a, a full size 15 passenger and had like a trailer that we had, we put all our stuff in that thing broke down so many times, but we spent two years just living out of that thing, driving out to Texas from California, driving up to Oregon, that whole stuff. And so I, I was, I was no stranger to that by the time I started doing live sound for other bands and seeing they would always be so kind to about it. They're like, man, I'm so sorry that we don't have better accommodations. And I was always just so very stoked to do it that I didn't, I didn't care. I've slept on the floor of vans before I've slept on the seats, slept sitting straight up, you know, it's all, it's all part of the love for doing it. Yeah. I definitely feel that my first tour was in an RV motorhome, and I thought this is as good as it's ever going to get. Like yeah. it can get no better. <laughs> yeah. And then I got a, got on a bandwagon and I was like, this is as good as it gets. Like I've, yeah. I can't get any better. And then you get on a bus and you turn into a snob. You're like, Oh, I'll never ride on a bandwagon ever again. Yeah. It's, uh, it's always nice to have the, the, the optimism about it though, because it, with how difficult things can be, whether it's weather or the challenge of the gig or the challenge of the venues, uh, it can get tough. So having definitely positive mindset, something that has always like stuck out to me through recording studios, through, live sound through making music with my friends or whatever, you know, there's, there's going to be, there's going to be bad, but you take it with the good, you know, and try to find the good and whatever it is. Totally. Uh, Logan. So can you take us through some of the other groups that you've worked with? I know you, you're, you've been with motionless quite a while, but I also understand you've worked with a couple of other groups in some capacity. Has it always been front of house? And so who are some of those other groups? Um, yeah, if, if it wasn't for motionless, the only job I've ever done otherwise is front of house, but I did, I mean, back in the day, I used to jump on with anyone who would let me. So I don't think those count. I did, uh, sworn in plotting you when I was starting, um, uh, let live. And then what was actually crazy. The reason I really got into music production is because of the way the Memphis may fire hollow record sounded. That was the first time that I was like, whoa, why does this sound so much different than everything else? What if, that snare is not a snare. Like, what is that? What is all that verb and stuff on it? And so, yeah, that really got me thinking. And then finding those forms led to everything else. But yeah, then I went to tour. That was my first gig truly tour managing doing front of house was with uh, Memphis May Fire. So that was like a cool uh, full circle moment. It was very brief. And I had the option to come back, but kept moving on it. So, you know, did Let Live, did Memphis Mayfire. Uh, then I did some stuff with Dillinger Escape Plan. 
And I think by the end of that, that was when motionless was like, okay, like he's, he's done other things. Like we could, we could try them out now. And then, you know, I did them. I did bear tooth. Uh, I did Lil Uzi vert for six months or so. Yeah. That was really crazy. And then, uh, trying to think of who else I've done a few different double dips and stuff. I can't remember them all. Tons of different people, all within the same general scene, except for the couple rappers that I did. But yeah, yeah. A lot of really good players, a lot of really good bands. I've been very fortunate for that. I know, Logan, you're you're using a DLive right now, so you're automatically my favorite person on the, the chat here. But <laughs> Elmo is using a DLive today. Really? That's correct. That's oh. correct. Today is my day one on the Allen and Heath D Live. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the club. <laughs> May it treat you well. Uh, and I know, Elmo, you have your LV1 wave system, which is pretty amazing. I, I picked your brain on that a couple of times. When did you guys start carrying your own consoles? Was it, has it been quite a while or how did that work out for you? Ooh. Uh, Logan, you go first because I got I got a long one. Well, yeah, my, mine's not quite so crazy. I, uh, I had always, when I was touring from 2014 to 2016, uh, I was just using house consoles and I remember seeing like someone wheel their SC 48 out of the trailer and thinking like, damn, they can rent a console. Like, whoa, <laughs> that's so awesome. And then uh, actually my first tour that I torment or a first tour that I did front of house for motionless, we were sharing an audio package. So, you know, I, that was my first tour every day, same console. And, and, uh, that was a really awesome experience, but, but also in the same way, uh, specifically with let live using a, a house console every day and just walking in and they love to sound check and just getting to spend all the time on every different console with a great band who's just up there jamming and letting me take my time. That was so much more beneficial than renting a console, at least then. Uh, but yeah, after, after we did that tour where we were all sharing the audio package, I was kind of like, well, this is kind of how it has to be. It's got to be the same thing. I didn't have a preference yet. And, you know, obviously warp tour, we went on to do that. And that has like, you know, that's the same console every day, Midas pro two. And that was fine. And then once that was over and I did Beartooth, they were the first ones that were like, what do you want? And I was like, like anything. And they're like, yeah, pretty much like, you know, what, whatever you want to want, whatever you want to rent, let's just get it. And so I got a profile, I got the big boy and then really started just taking the profile everywhere. And then I just started seeing the D lives pop up. We got intrigued, started renting those for a while. And then, yeah finally bought a couple and might be my final resting place, but I still got love for a couple of the other ones too. How about you, Elmo? Let's, let's hear this long story. So, I mean, same thing, you know, like in 2014, I wasn't at a luxury to be renting pretty much anything. I, a lot of my first tours was house consoles and a lot of them were analog, uh, still at the time. Like this is, right as the x32 kind of broke market and so prior to that as a venue you kind of had to be at a certain level to even afford an avid digital console or you know the alternative was like the yamaha series stuff like that um and it 
you know, so I, I tried to manage my variables by bringing microphones, bringing my own mics that I knew every day and having, and like kind of vetting the bands that I would go on tour with, because I did also want that same kind of aspect that Logan was mentioning, where you have a, a really a, a solid set of performers on stage that really play well, makes it really easy. And you can really learn how each of these individual consoles work, how you can work them to your advantage. So I was doing that for a long, long while. And then the X32 broke market. And then that kind of became something that was sort of a, I, I wasn't renting it, but at some point there was tours that almost every venue had either that or a pre Sonus. So it became, instead of renting a, a, a console, I brought my thumb drive and my microphones and I'd have my scenes and it would be a lot more consistent night to night. But I think the only console I've ever rented on tour aside from no. Yeah. Aside from like a warp tour where there was the same console every day, same PA every day. The only console I ever rented on tour as either a tour manager or just a front of house was an X32. Uh, and that was just something that became kind of the standard. Uh, then I started working with ice nine kills and they already owned two X32s. They had a monitors and a front of house and they were the rack mount version ones. So I was for the longest time, I was mixing them on an iPad, just an iPad every show and I would be at front of house with my little tiny dinky iPad mixing and stuff and they would need monitor adjustments and I'd swap my IP address that it's listening to to go to the rack mounted uh monitor console and doing monitors and front of house from one iPad. And then we got the full sized X32 to utilize at front of house so that I had fader control. That very quickly became let's get an X touch little eight channel fader controller and we can fly overseas with the rack and those eight faders and your iPad. And so this whole time leading up to the LV one that I have that I currently own, I've pretty much only utilized the X32 as my console to use, but I've definitely spent a lot of time using other consoles through my time before renting quote unquote renting x32s so i've worked on like the profiles the sc48s the presonus stuff i've never spent time with the d live stuff because this is a lot that series was newer to me and at that at the point that this stuff was already coming out i was locked with the x32 with ice nine kills so i just decided to roll with it which is fine then i bought my lv1 in December of last year. Uh, and I did that because I knew I was running out of flexibility with the X32. I was running it as maxed out as possible. And the flexibility that it gives me now is endless. And I love it. Uh, and I think that's kind of something that I see with a lot of the DLive users as well, like yourself and Logan. Uh, there's just so much more that can be accomplished with these newer digital consoles now that there ever was before with like the profiles and the X32s and the M7s and stuff like that. So I've only had mine for about a year and I love it. Uh, today as my day one with the D live is also a lot of fun. So we'll see how this growing relationship turns out between me and Alan and Heath, but I love it. It's a, it's a great console. They sound phenomenal. Honestly, I, I love Alan and Heath preamps. Logan, are you, did you ever hit a point on the D live where you were using waves plugins or have you always kept everything in the console? No, uh, 
that was kind of the way it was pitched to me too. I was like, uh, you know, talking to some of my friends who used that. I was like, ah, I could mix a band on 12 faders. And he was like, bet you can. I was like, all right, well. And I was like, yeah, but I could not have waves. And he was like, bet you could. I'm like, oh, whatever, I'll give it a try. And and at the time, I was very much a believer of my show. How good of a show I'll have depends on the console I'm on. We spent a lot of time in Europe, and uh, I didn't really have any connects or even really understand getting a console over there. So I just kept using house consoles over there. And, uh, you know, all the Allen Heath that I would hit before the D live, I was like, no way. I even changed the rider to say absolutely no Allen and Heath consoles. And I, I just felt like, especially some of the problems that I would have in my mix when I switched to the D live, I didn't have those problems anymore. I don't know. You know, I'm sure it was time and, and just, not doing things right being inexperienced but you know time passing maybe i just made all the right decisions but i just remember instantly being like wow this is better than i've ever had it and i have no waves on here i'm just going to stay without it also waves turns me off a little because every horror story i've ever heard about someone losing signal at front of house it always has to do with waves it's it's very rarely anything else that goes wrong and, and, you know, in the forums that you're in, you see a post every day about someone's waves not working. Uh, you know, it's not always it's not always the same person or one of our friends, but I'm telling you, every day someone someone's waves is going crazy. And I would love to get into it. I just haven't yet. I've just been I feel like just building and building and building and adding one thing, making the mix one percent better each night. But uh, Waves is definitely the next step. I just haven't gotten into it yet. Yeah, I had a full Waves rig uh, when I had my M32 uh, compact that I went on my first tour with. And that thing would crash inevitably, literally, almost every night right before the show. Sound check, phenomenal. No problems whatsoever. I'd get to the show. I'd walk up to the console. I'm like, everything looks just perfect. And then, you know flip over to the walk-on song and all of a sudden I look over and the wave server's flashing red and I'm like, all right, we're going to bypass all those inserts. And then, so I just stopped carrying it on that tour and then I had sold off my wave system and then I went back to the D live. I bought another wave system and I had done inserts and was doing virtual sound check on the D live and I would AB it with and without my waves rig. And I was like, it doesn't sound that much different with what I was doing with waves versus what I was doing without it. And I, my logic or my reasoning was, I don't want to carry another rack of gear because a lot of our shows were throw and go and being the opener. Most times you don't get much time. So I haven't had waves since like 2019, but I sort of miss it. I sort of want to get it. (laughs) I can't, I don't know. I like gear, I guess that's a, a problem. I agree. I definitely, I, there are some things that I miss, um, about having waves just natively when I would use the avid profile, but the, the D live had like the Sims, the simulations of all the good stuff, the LA two, a, the 76, the, you know, a distortion compressor, it had everything. Uh, and I used to use, I actually used to use eight channels of Apollo and then they, because I just wanted SSL, uh, comps on everything I could get them on. And then D live added that. So I was like, well, I don't need this anymore. So, 
DLive just had all the good stuff and the the deep process and stuff was good enough that I didn't feel it, that I needed it. But if, if they didn't have the 76 and the LA 2A, uh, yeah, I would absolutely be on waves and I'd probably be 50 plugins deep. It's like, it's like the potato chips. Once you start, you just can't stop with waves. You just keep adding and adding and adding. And next thing you know, you, like you said, you're 50 layers deep. Um, this tour, I really got into the Dyn8 a lot. Like I, I put it on every single channel. I, I would bypass it just to keep everything aligned if I wasn't using it. But, um, man, the Dyn8 is so good. Like it, it does so much. And then especially like with the dynamic EQ and being able to subtract stuff out when there's nothing happening. Like I would subtract all high frequency information from my vocalist microphone. But as soon as he would lay into it, that would release, you know, and open it back up right away. It's, it's just such a great plugin. And the fact that you can have 64 of them going at once free of charge is is pretty amazing yeah yeah one of the big one of the big reasons that i ended up going to waves to begin with was i guess it was twofold the the practical side was i needed dynamic eq very very badly i think that is one pitfall to the x32 m32 console in and of itself if they could offer a new firmware update and somehow implement some sort of dynamic eq that's that's in line doesn't introduce too much latency that would be a killer update for those consoles. But that was what really pulled me in the direction of getting a Waves rig as a like a, an insert thing for the X32 for Ice 9 kills. That was the big one, the F6 Dynamic EQ stuff. Uh, and also, I was just always using Wave plugins on the, in the studio and XYZ. But the Dynamic EQ was a really big selling point for me to get even just that on the vocals because there's so much benefit to dynamic eq and stuff multi-band inspection i guess you could say like looking at different regions of sources but that was that was a big one for me was getting that opportunity so that that it's a the the dyne 8 stuff and the deep processing that's really cool that it's on board and, and like you said it, it comes with it free of charge you don't need to buy an additional thing to introduce that into your console that's really that's really next level yeah and it, it introduces like four samples i think of latency if you use dynate that's nothing right and you know the purists out there will say you have to put it on every input channel you know just to keep everything aligned but i my ears aren't that sharp but i this tour i did put it on every single channel and i think i ended up using it on nearly every one of them at the end but yeah all right Let's, uh, we're more than halfway through the podcast. It was really fun hearing about your guys, uh, different histories and, uh, your perspectives on, you know, coming up in the world of audio, but let's talk a little bit about Trinity of Terror. For those not familiar, Trinity of Terror is sort of a conglomeration tour of three co-headlining groups, each of which are pretty massive in their own right. You've got Motionless and White, which is Logan's band that he mixes for. Ice Nine Kills, which is the band that album mixes for. And then you have Black Veil Brides, which was mixed by Boris. And, um, you know, you guys would rotate headlining each night. You would share, I think, equal amounts of production. You did a total of three different tours. Were they all North American tours? Yep. Yep. Nothing overseas or, or South America or anything like that? 
we did one show in Mexico, but I guess that wasn't a true Trinity show. But technically, yeah, technically one show in Mexico was the only yeah. time that that package left uh, left the U.S. Besides a stop or two, stop or three in Canada. Yeah. And all pretty much sheds and um, arenas, correct? Yeah. The first, the first leg was there was a couple of uh, like large clubs mixed in with some like theaters and stuff. So it wasn't all sheds, but I think the I think the prerogative was to put it into big venues, even from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, for people listening, I think every night that we did was at least twenty five hundred then uh capacity or more yeah i think uh the smallest club we did was south side club in or south side room in dallas mm-hmm. at like 2500 and that was sold out which was insanity <laughs> then the rest of it was pretty much arenas yeah and then uh did you guys carry your own pa on all three legs we only yeah. carried it on leg two and leg three i think the first one we were because that was obviously the inaugural run of that trinity of terror concept the triple co-headliner so i i'm not in charge or in talks with any anybody in involved with that stuff but i'd imagine that we didn't carry pa because we wanted to see how it would do maybe and just limiting the overhead but we still had access to some amazing pas on that tour and this leg three that we were on we were carrying l acoustic k2 with uh ks28 subs so i think at full deployment there were 16 k2s per side for the main hang 16 ks28s uh subs across the front but i think that we had 20 in total i think there were some spares but most nights it was 16 center clustered and then we had eight additional k2s per side for outfills and then some arcs and some caras for sort of uh, downstage lip and uh, edge fills and things like that. So yeah, a pretty dang dang impressive PA system. It was a it was a nice PA to use every day. Every day it was just clean and it was something. It was a variable we didn't need to worry about. At least for me, in in, in I'd say ninety eight percent of the cases for ter- terror like two and three. I didn't really need to worry about what was going through the PA. It was really, it was an awesome experience to be carrying a PA. Yeah. Did you guys have any sort of input on the PA decision that was carried or was that done by more of the production management side of, of the tour? I, mean, I think we were asked, right? Yeah. It was kind of like, Hey, what, do, what, what do we think? And we were, we were all like, I mean, L acoustics is, is the goal, right? I mean, we had talked about some other things. I had said I wouldn't have minded the JBL uh, A12s. There, there's a couple of things that we talked about, but the price on K2 was was fine, and everybody had it. I think we even yeah. got a quote for a Claire rig, and and you know that was that was not much less or any less than the K2 rig. So we were kind of like, let's just get what we want. And and that being said, it, I think. There might have been some. I don't. I don't want to say any lack of planning or anything, but we definitely would have benefited from some K one on this tour very heavily. Yeah, uh, I agree. Some rooms, some rooms, the K two was fine, uh, and and in most rooms it was awesome. But 
you know, some of the sheds we were playing, it was just like, you know, those people aren't getting anything past, you know, so many, so many rows deep just because of how big they are. And, you know, the K2s are much more directional and the K1s are just straight at you. So uh, we could have benefited with a, with maybe, maybe a few more boxes of that. But again, I, I, you know, I don't know what things we're looking at budget wise. I definitely know when the production budget first came across, everyone was like, <gasps> it was, uh, it was definitely like, oh man, yeah, we spent some money. So, so I, I think that K1 would have been necessary, but I, I don't know that we could have squeezed another penny out of the production budget. So for what we had, it rocked for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think there was only maybe one or two venues where I wish we could have flown some subs. Um, the Seattle, uh, or was it Portland? I think it was the Portland, uh, venue, the, the clouds or sky and uh, theater in the clouds or whatever. Theater in the clouds. Yeah. I was drawing, drawing a blank on the name there, but that, 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 uh, arena was so tall and the way that they had set up the room, we split the arena, um, not in half lengthwise, but we split it in half widthwise. And they sold seats all the way to the very top row of that last balcony. And when I went up there to walk and just sort of listen, I was literally looking down <laughs> on the PA, you know, from a significant amount. And I was sort of shocked by how little base there was up in that area. And I know our system engineers tried to deploy the subs differently to throw some base, you know, up to those higher rows. But I don't think it was as effective as maybe flying subs would have been. But like you guys said, the, the budget, yeah. you know, just wasn't there to, to allow for extra boxes. I mean, to be fair, we should have had subs in the air every show. Again, like I would have loved to have at least three or four aside in the air would have been awesome. But next time, there's always next time. I would even I would even sacrifice some from the ground to put in the air because the tour I did just before leg three of Trinity, uh, they had subs in the air. Uh, bring me the horizons PA that they were running, uh, D and B PA and they had subs in the air. And when I first saw it, I was like, yeah, that's cool. But I like them on the ground, but I had never, you know, been mixing rooms that big with subs in the air and never realized like, wow, it's so important. Like, it's not like a, it doesn't pound like that power alley does. It's not like every kick is not crushing your chest, but it is even just average even yeah. very cool yeah a lot more consistency and uh i just people can't see the video obviously that we see of each other but that power alley did pound a number of times yeah. Holy oh yeah um speaking yeah. of that so like when you're when you're setting up your mixes on on either in-ears or on studio monitors or whatever you're doing to prepare you know i did the same thing did multi-track mixing but I was surprised by how much bass I was subtracting out just because of the sheer amount of power we had in the low frequency range. How do you guys approach setting up your mixes when you're starting a new tour and, you know, like, for example, you're jumping on the LV1 for the first time or you're, you know, doing something different on the DLive Logan and you're trying to, you know, play around. Are you looking for a flat mix when you when you're doing it on monitors and ears, or are you trying to replicate the experience? Or how do you guys? What's your approach towards that? Yeah, I mean, I me personally, yeah. If I'm if I'm doing pre pro, uh, I'll just set up a pair of studio monitors and just go to town for about as as, as long as 
as long as I can stand to do. Uh, and then I'll check that on like my in-ears or something. But I find that I try in those prep stages, uh, I try not to go overboard with it. If it's not a tour where we're bringing a PA, which, you know, never has been before and I'm sure won't be for some time after now that this is over. But just to me, it, the, there's no bigger variable than the PA system. And and I feel like I could work on my drums till they sounded great in my ears till I was blue in the face and then put it through the PA. And it's just like, where's my mix? Like, it sounds awesome in my ears. And, you know, not every place you play is beautiful. When you're not bringing your PA, you'll be lucky. You know, you're some days you walk in and you're glad you have a JBL Vertec in the air, VTX in the air. And you're like, well, that's cool. And some days you play a, a shitty bar where they can smoke inside still. And it's some, it's some point source stuff. And, and like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't feel comfortable that my mix on my ears will be even remotely close to what, what the mix needs to be in a room like that on a PA like that to connect the mix to the audience. So uh, mo most of my prepping or hard work in the mix definitely comes once I'm uh, once I'm feeding left and right to a real PA for the show. So Elmo, I'll get to you in one second, but I just want to expand on your approach there, Logan, for a little bit. Uh, so what are you trying to set up in, in your pre-pro mix then? What are like, what are your goals or objectives before you hit that first PA, whether it's your own or the venues? Um, well, if I'm starting from scratch, making sure all my busing's right, you know, that's, that's, Definitely step one when I make a new file is route everything out. But then then really all I'm doing from there, once everything's bust, I'm just making sure each input on its own sounds as good as I think I can get it. I, I find at least with the style of bands that I seem to mix, if my inputs on their own rock and my busing is correct, it'll rock. So to me, the most important thing is each individual input on its own sounding as good as it can before I even listen to the mix as a whole. You know what I mean? So I'll work on kick drum work and then turn it off, work on snare drum, turn it off. And then when it's all done, push everything up. And I find that usually uh, it's pretty close right away, you know, but some balances, like I said, on studio monitors, just don't get them. Like, like my monitors at home, uh, I'll listen I'll run a mix through there and I can hear every note of my guitars. And then you get into the room where you're playing and I start playing back that same mix and I can't hear a single note, but I, but I, but I know that they're EQ'd right. And if I just turn them up, I'll probably be fine. So just, just really making sure that every input on its own is as good as, as good as it can get. That's all I'm really doing it at a pre-pro. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's an interesting approach. I kind of, I have a similar thought process to that as well. Uh, this year, I knew going into it, I think as of December of last year, I kind of knew that all of 2022, I was going to have one or two PAs, like the entire year through. I knew it was going to be carried PA mostly. Trinity of Terror 1, I knew we weren't going to have a carried PA. So I started setting up my year show file, let's call it, with that same thought in mind. Clean up my individual sources. So I know that at nothing, at zero, at some sort of like, quote unquote, unity or whatever, it would sound clean. It, the, 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 like the bass guitar wouldn't be too bass heavy or the vocals 
when they're digging in and they're real close to the capsule won't sound too muffled in comparison to other vocal performances or something like that. So that when I just load onto a PA, even if it doesn't quite replicate the same way as it did during my pre-production day, uh, it would still, I, I would know where it's sitting. I guess that's kind of what I took away from what you were saying, Logan, is that you know where things are, right? And then you can kind of build based off of your variables for the day, for the show, for the venue, for the PA, whatever. So that was kind of my approach to that whole thing as well. Also, the the band that I work with right now, Ice Nine Kills, they do a lot of live stream options. So if there's ever an opportunity for them to have their performance broadcast or something like that, they're more than likely going to take it, at least in the in the experiences that I've had over the last couple of years post-COVID. And because of that, I also wanted to have something ready for broadcast because I wouldn't want to send my individual stems to a different person to mix when they don't have the same inside knowledge of the songs, the cues, the scenes, X, Y, Z. So a lot of my prep for like in my headphones or through the studio monitors was to make it sound as close to a record as possible. And I've heard time and time again, over the span of years I've been touring that I've heard the, the statement you know, it's not an MP3 when it's coming to the PA, so it shouldn't feel like an MP3 or something like that, which I, I've never agreed with because then why are we tuning the PA to our favorite Steely Dan songs or our favorite Deftones song? You know, there's a reason that we go through that process. So for me, I thought to myself, it should sound good in my headphones. And if it sounds good in my headphones, I can drive it through the PA and then I can figure out where it's not going to work. Sometimes I will have such a bright room after the PA, even after tuning and everything, that I'll play my virtual sound check and all I will hear is the cymbals. But then I put on my headphones and it sounds like a proper drum mix where the cymbals are in the appropriate level. So knowing where my sources landed when I was listening to it in my headphones helped set me up to like rebalance things occasionally if I needed to per venue, per PA, something like that. And I'm not using anything crazy for headphones. I got those ATH M fifties, $200 guitar center, audio technica headphones. They're awesome. They rock, but I'm not usually going for a flat mix. I'm usually going for the same kind of low mids, low frequency, heavy, kind of mix style because that does replicate when you're listening to it on headphones let's say you're watching a twitch stream of the concert you don't want there to be an enormous lacking low end whereas you're standing in front of the speakers at the concert and you're feeling your shirt rumble because of the the bass frequencies and whatnot and you know that's all part of the experience of it all i think some of my favorite concerts have been weighted towards the low frequencies and i've always thought that that was such a, a wonderful thing to experience in a concert i you can live and die by low frequencies though too like especially in the arenas and whatnot you know controlling that low frequency energy is always a challenge oh yeah that was something that i really enjoyed about the l acoustics rig that we had is that the the, the k2s were so uh wide range in their frequencies that you could really drive a, a considerable amount of low energy through them leaving the subs to help with the people that are on the ground. 
just kind of touching back on what we were saying about how we should have had some flown subs. I also agree with that too, because then it, it further extends that into the coverage region, which is always something that's desired when we're mixing these bigger rooms. For sure. There's all sorts of things that, that I didn't take into consideration being in arenas every single day that now, you know, I, I learned a lot on this tour and I appreciate you guys chiming in and, and helping out when I had questions and whatnot, but it's definitely a different experience um, going from like large clubs and theaters to arenas. You become a, a manager of things more than, than a, uh, uh, an architect of things, I think. Yeah. That was something that I really, that was fascinating to me through the Trinity of terror tours was that this was something of my first shows consistently in these larger venues and it was very eye-opening to a lot of different aspects something like that you know where you're you, you said it in a really good way you're kind of managing a lot of different pieces of your puzzle whereas where we all come from it started with so much more creativity and that was kind of the leading foot forward and now we are all still creative every day but we're also managing a lot of different moving parts in our mix and a lot of variables that we can't really control, like the architecture of the room or, for instance, that Portland venue where we set up the room hot dog style. And that kind of changes the way that everything is going to feel when you're standing 25 feet away from the lip of the stage and you're used to being 125 feet away from the lip of the stage. Yeah, and it's been, it was a fascinating, fascinating challenges all over the place for sure. Something else that you said and touched on briefly about broadcast mixes, um, and and I think that's one thing very much so. It's just one of the very tough things about mixing. You know, sometimes you'll be at a festival, and you know, the band that's opening, they're playing at twelve thirty p.m. You're watching them from the side stage, and you're like, "Whoa, these guys kind of rip." I've never heard of them. You go out front and you're like, wow, this, this, this sounds great. Like I, I hear everything, everything has its own space. And it's such a cool mix for, uh, you know, obviously it's probably not even a guy they know. It's probably the guy that who's just there, who's excited that somebody doesn't have a front of house that day. And he throws a scene together real quick uh, because he's got 500 other bands to look after that day. And he gets, you know, 15 real minutes to work here before he's back, whatever you go out and you're like, this sounds cool. I hear everything. It's all got its own space. This band rips, but go listen to that broadcast mix. And you're going to be like, what is that? It sounds like it's this big around, you know, very small sounding, but, but you know, there at the festival, you were like, it was perfect. Right. That's something that in my mind, I struggle with a lot because I, I think in that same way, it's the broadcast mix. If, if you have a good broadcast mix, if you're listening on your ears and you're like, this sounds awesome, sounds like the record, I would be good to push this to, to a broadcast mix. And if you put that same mix through the big PA, you might be like, well, this isn't exactly it. But yeah. And then you're kind of forced to choose. You know what I mean? You're, you know, uh, say you're headlining something like Reading and Leeds or Download and you know it's going to be live stream you're kind of forced to choose, you know, you're like, Hey, I got 45,000 people here listening to it. And it doesn't sound the way that I want. I'm worried. I'm not connecting these fans to this band, but when you put your ears in and hear what's going to exist forever 
and complete perpetualness, you're like, right. this I need this to translate. So it's, it's, it really is a war between, at least for me and the bands that I mix, it's tough to find the balance between this is a great mix that will sound powerful and heavy live, but if someone records it, will it sound cool? Yeah. And I think something that's kind of bridging that gap these days is the opportunity for less open air sources, right? So we can kind of simulate spaces. I'm talking about like tempers and effect and modeling software to eliminate your stage bleed, quote unquote, is what we've all kind of known it as. That gives you more freedom to create what's coming out of the pa but at the cost of you're gonna need something that can that can produce that i'm thinking about these dive bars that we all know and i'm sure we all go to small club shows to see our buddies or a a band that we want to watch or something it's not always this luxurious enormous venue and sometimes the equipment that the venue has to produce these sounds isn't going to have enough juice. It's not going to be adequate enough to do all that. So it's definitely still a balance for sure. I think part of why I went so hard into my particular belief for this mix show file that I had for this year was because I kind of knew that that variable wouldn't really be an existent factor for me. And so I ran with it and Trinity one, there were some lesser, lesser than great PAs that I can remember. And honestly, maybe it was just the way that they were set up or something like that. And we didn't have time to figure it all out. So it becomes combat audio. You know, you're, you're fighting back with what you got and you're going to make it happen. But being for me, at least being cognizant of the fact that this is going to live on the internet forever, forever. People are going to be able to listen back to that. And I think there's a, a, a lot of merit in the fact that listening back to a mix that sounds itty bitty on the internet because you watched it live and it sounded great. I think that's a great testament to like the reinforcement quality of what we're doing as live audio engineers. They took all of the sound all together and created something that sounded amazing when you were experiencing it right there. But all they had to do to make that experience was a tiny, like what is what turned into sounding like a small mix. Usually it's like clicky kick drum, probably no guitars, no cymbals. And it's just sounds like transient popcorn sounds with your kick drum and your snare drum. And then a ton of vocals, because that's usually when you have loud amps and a rock band going, that's usually the only thing that the PA needs to deliver. Yeah, no, that's totally right. And, and uh, yeah, something I definitely think about a lot. And I'm grateful that I'm grateful that the band I work for, hates mixes off the board you know obviously hearing them of their own favorite bands and hearing them of their own band across you know across their career kind of like yeah let's not really do those but there's going to come a time where you don't have a choice you know i've heard of people saying like oh no we're not streaming it we film everything but we're not going to stream it two days later it's online 240,000 views in the worst mix you ever heard and you're like you know i could have if i would have known i could have given you a much better sounding thing so uh, I just don't want to get caught red handed with that. And I feel like all the work I do is for in the moment uh, and at the concert. But, but after touring with Elmo, I'm, I'm realizing that, you know, 
it's more about keeping your mix consistent and it's everything else is probably not your problem. If you're delivering the same mix on the same PA every day, the issues you're having are probably not your problem. It's likely the venue you're in or, or, you know, the way it was deployed. I don't want to say it's the systems tech fault, but you know, sometimes the decisions that they might make for a room aren't something that you agree with, but you know, whatever, that's not my job. So yeah, there's all, all sorts of different variables that I feel like, can really drive the wedge between a good mix on broadcast and a good mix in a live setting. And, and I, I hate to settle on a middle ground because then you feel like you're not happy anywhere about it. So, you know, Elmo kind of really opened me up to how much of the work can be done, you know, on your left and right bus itself to tune the PA to how you want it to sound in the room instead of changing your inputs or, you know, maybe considering a separate bus out for when I have to do broadcast mixes, stuff like that. But, uh, it's definitely a tough compromise. I have a separate matrix for broadcast feed. So if I am asked, then it gets a different, a completely different EQ than my output matrices do, you know, my left, right, sub fill matrices are all EQ'd for the room each day. But there's another variable with uh, broadcast that none of us have control over, and that's what they decide to do to what we send to them via compression and their other processing that they might have in place. I know like Sirius XM has just a ton of compression that really makes getting live sound to sound real, you know, very tricky. And it's for good reason. They've got a broadcast set up to a satellite and then, you know, beams down from outer space. But along those lines, how do you guys feel about iPhone videos or not iPhone necessarily, but phone videos? Like when you hear those back on social media, what's your general consensus and feel? And does any of that weigh into some of your mixed decisions? Absolutely. I'm a, yeah, absolutely, man. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a crazy person. You ask any person that I've toured with, band, crew, friend, anything like that, that's seen me on the road for more than just a day, like they see me after the show sort of deal, I will, while I'm eating my dinner, I'll have my, my phone just right up against my ear listening to all of the videos that I see that I can find on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, because at, you know, there's going to be some teenager in Jakarta that all they've ever known of their favorite band, Ice Nine Kills or Motionless and White or Atreyu or Stitched Up Heart, all they've ever known of these artists live on this little tiny phone device, right? So all they get is that experience. So I'm not sitting behind my console thinking, how can I make this sound good for Instagram? more along the lines of listening to these videos and seeing what important elements of the songs aren't coming through because Logan was mentioning a, a, a sentence to me throughout the course of the year, throughout the Trinity of terror tours. Uh, he was mentioning something along the and you, you can clear this up for me if I'm saying it wrong, but like something about connecting the fans to the artists, right? If they're not connecting, then you're not doing your job. Yeah. And if it's not like, if it's not there, you can't understand what's going on in the mix. You can't just throw your hands in the air and say, Oh, well, you know, it's, it's an Instagram video. It's, it doesn't matter. Like, no, it absolutely matters because one of those videos can get double, triple, quadruple the amount of impressions as the amount of people that were in the room for that day. And yeah. there might, there might've been 2000 people in that room that one day that you thought you had a great mix, but there could be 200,000 people that are watching that video that sounds like like poop and 
thinking, wow, this band sounds horrible live. Yeah. So it's a huge deal for me. I, I agree with that. And, and, you know, one thing quickly about phone videos that drives me nuts is a song will never have as many views on YouTube as the person who uploads the band playing it for the first time. And uh, that drives me crazy. Every new song, if I look for it live, the top video was the first time we've played it. The first time I've mixed it. The first time the singer has sung the words all in a row. You know what I mean? So it's like, you're already up against it. So I, I feel like in certain ways, you have to take some of those things into account. And, and again, once that night's over, it's over. And a lot of these people, for, for us, it's a thing we do every day. And it's, there's always the next one, yada, yada. But in that concert, you might've, you might've left the microphone too low for someone who didn't get to hear their favorite line in the entire set. And yep. and that's what I'm speaking more so about connection is, uh, and it's not exactly all my own philosophy on this, but you can have a great mix. Everything can sound awesome and completely coherent. And you're like, wow, everything is, everything sounds perfect. And then the guitar solo happens and it's just happening off to the left side. It didn't come into the middle. It didn't get any louder, something like that. You're not, you're missing that chance to further connect the crowd to what is happening in the song. Even if that means turning your awesome sounding snare and kick down for 30 seconds to let it breathe. There's, there's, there's so many more moves to make besides how does it sound that, you know, go into go into connecting the artist to the fans. And unfortunately, the only really important things, whether we like it or not, is the kick drum, the snare drum, and the vocal. Yeah. You know, it the, it keeps your beat, it keeps the people dancing, and they're hearing the words that they want to hear. If, if they're not a musician, if they're not into the music itself, there's a good chance they're there because of the lyrics and the words. So obviously, that's the most important thing, first things first. And if you know, and the only real musicality I feel like the average listener cares to understand beyond the lyrics and the vocals is the kick and the snare. Is everything else important? Absolutely. But what's really driving your connection is those three things. And sometimes tracks and cues like that, uh, especially with Ice Nine Kills, some of their some of their biggest parts is a is a vocal like a vocal sample. You know what I mean? That everyone shouts. So, you know, almost not leaving that buried and letting the crowd sing it, it's there how the crowd imagined it. it and that is one thing that phone videos will not get wrong you know you can be like well because i know steve we've talked about it and you said well your snare might sound loud in a phone video because the phone video focuses on whatever the loudest frequency is and treats it like a voice and it is true the iphone's doing all all sorts of different stuff to it but i also feel that the iphone is the best the best videos i see you know what I mean? If it's not an iPhone, it's it's some very low quality video from the third row in front of one of the mono fills. And it's just not good. All the best videos I see are like, you know, someone just shooting it on their iPhone, holding it right. And I think also as listeners and, and people who are really interested in audio, we're kind of we kind of already understand that if it sounded on the phone, it sounded like this in the room. You, you know what I mean? It's the same thing as listening to your uh, pair, same pair of headphones every day. Like, even if it does change the way that things come in and things go out, we're pretty used to that, I feel like. And it, at the very least, it's a way to look back and check, you know, what cues did I hit? What cues did I miss? 
there's I, I would say there's no sense in really obsessing over individual input sounds. If you're like, whoa, like it sounds like the the sibilance on his vocals ripping my face off, but it wasn't like that in the room. Stuff like that, probably the phone. But again, that's the 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 learning that we do to realize, oh, that's that has nothing to do with it. But yeah, I phone videos are important. And and like I said, this that's all people have left once the night is over. And for us, we do it every day. Uh, so we don't really care. But for a lot of these people, they've been waiting three months for this. They bought their tickets three months ago and the night is finally here and they're going to take 16 videos and they're going to watch them back all the time. So it is important to me that it sounds pretty close to how it was. And the other phenomenon with that is I feel like I'll watch a show or record the video myself when I'm at a concert and the singer is crushing it. And then you watch back the video and it's very pitchy. And you're like, whoa, I didn't. I didn't notice that at the time, but that's the same. It probably was that pitchy and you just didn't notice it because the reverb of the room and other people singing it around you and stuff like that really helps. So in some ways, it's a very true indicator of what was coming out of the PA. What, uh, not to dwell on phones. And I know Elmo, we're probably keeping you from doing your show or no, I, I, I'm, I'm on a prep day, man. I'm, I'm here to have these awesome conversations. Uh, I was going to say one thing about the, the phones that I've noticed is even if it's an iPhone, the quality of the recording varies so tremendously. Like I, I would find 12 or 13 different recordings on Instagram or whatever social media and often in the same sort of area, but, but 12 or 13 different people. And it was like 12 or 13 different mixes. And a couple of the phones I listened to and I was like, wow, I really, I love that phone. Like, I want to find out exactly how they recorded it. Did they have a different microphone on it? You know, because everybody's got the little Zoom or the Shure microphones now that go through the lightning port. But it's just amazing to me how many variables there are, even with phones capturing the, re, the performance at the venue. So I, I love the phone videos too. I listen to them every single night. I cringe at a few of them that I hear. Uh, especially like when they're in the second row and the subs are just like overwhelming. Blowing <laughs> yeah. out the whole video, yeah. And I'm like, why would you even post that? Because all you hear is, you know, the the farted out sub just like destroying that poor microphone on the iPhone. But oh yeah, oh yeah. I think the I think is variable with phone videos is how they're holding it. You know what I mean? If you're holding it, and obviously no one can see the video, but if if you're holding it long ways, holding it hot dog style, if you will. Um, usually the hand is kind of cupping right around where, you know, if you just grab your phone and turn it sideways and hold it, how it's comfortable and look at your hands, you're, you're either covering the microphone entirely or partially, or you're cupping a, you know, a, a half circle around it with your hand and then record your phone video like that. So, you know, the really big variable is that, but if you're listening to this and you take videos on your phone, just hold it in the middle. With one hand, gets you the best video. Yeah, don't cover any of the microphones. Don't keep your hand close to the microphone because it's just going to change all the frequencies and the way that the microphone captures it all. And that's what's tough is because when you watch that video back, you can't see how they were holding their phone. No, of course. You know, so. I think something that we've all kind of been told throughout the years of our audio journeys, respectively, is you it's like i i call it like the car stereo test right like we've all heard about the car stereo test right you take your mix and you put it through something that might just be a consumer level application something that could be 
widely accepted or widely experienced at a similar level within, you know, a degree of, you know, reason. And I think that part of it is what I'm trying to do while I'm listening to these videos. Like I understand some of them are not going to sound flattering. Some of them might sound way better than I remember the night being, but all of them are going to give me more information about the show after I'm already packed up, loaded out hundreds of miles away. It, it helps me to go back and check on things. And if I feel like, hey, did I hit that cue? Did I make that snare bomb too loud at that one part? Was, uh, was did I like accidentally forget to turn up somebody's guitar at a part? It, it's really helpful to go back and double check your work and help you kind of get a better understanding. I use what I learn and what I hear from those videos the next day during virtual sound check. I'll go back and I'll double check because I'll load up the same show from yesterday, see how it sounds, this, that, the other. But I think there's a lot of value to the phone videos. At this point in my career, I don't think, I mean, it's, ne it's never going away. So I think it's definitely an important thing to be thinking about for like information, you know, like you, the more information you have, the better you can learn and, and, and apply afterwards. Right. And, and I, and I, I hate to keep harping on it, but, but again, with, with the phones, it's like, you, you know, you're saying we're doing these big shows, these massive shows. And some of them are 2,500 people. The most we had is like 6,200 people, something like that. Some of, some of the 65, yeah, 6,500. Some of the worst phone videos on TikTok are doing 10, 15 times the amount of views. You're, you're in a world now where a video moment of the show can impact more people than the show did. And, and on a, yeah, like Elmo said, it, it is here to stay. So I think we have to sympathize it a bit because, you know, especially in today's world, one bad phone video getting really popular could be very damning for a band. And, uh, really? you know, the same way that one excellent phone video could be very great for them. So it, it's so crazy how, how much of an impact it has and, and do I wish it didn't? Sure. But it's not going anywhere. So yeah, I think you got to sympathize with it at least a little bit. Do you guys see either of your bands? I, I don't know if at Prey you will ever get to this point, but do you ever see your, your bands uh, simulcasting, like doing a live stream in addition to the show? And I ask because when I was on tour in 2019, there was a band, uh, like a jam band called uh, Disco Biscuit. And they travel with a full, back then, pre-pandemic, they traveled with a full streaming audio-video crew. Man, that's badass. And I was talking to their production manager because we were playing at the same venue as a multi-room venue. And I was just impressed because they had cameras on jibs and booms and things like that. And, you know, multi-camera angles, shoots. They had a video production office. And... The, the production manager said that they streamed all of their shows sort of like Fish does. I assume this is more popular with jam bands, but they would make as much money streaming the performance as they would on ticket sales. Do you, do you guys see that happening in our respective genres of music or with your bands at all? Uh, maybe. Go, go for it, Logan. I don't. I think anyone who is really into that idea got their fill during the pandemic. I mean, we did emotionless. We did two live stream events. They were very beneficial for the band. 
and and more so the second one was very like a very cool thing and a very cool moment for the band. So I feel like maybe for our guys, they like the control of if we're gonna film something and put it out there like a live stream thing, it needs to be a special thing. I just they just don't want to do just the show. I I do think that's a great idea for making making more money. And and maybe it is something to look into. I mean, it's no secret that touring is double as expensive now as it has been. So, you know, finding a way to make even more money, who knows? Who knows? Uh, 2023 and the way that things change, if they change, could force a lot more bands into doing something like that. That's an awesome idea. Uh, personally, I hope we don't have to do that. I would love to not be in charge of two different mixes, but... It's a, definitely a cool idea, and and it's weird. It feels weird to me that jam bands are the larger demographic for doing the simultaneous. Well, I, I guess if, if every if every performance is going to be unique in and of itself, you don't really want to mess out on that. And there's going to be a million people all over in other places that can't go to that concert. I don't know that it would ever be a thing for Ice Nine Kills. We, like I mentioned earlier, they're they're they don't shy away from the opportunity for it to be simulcast. We did welcome to Rockville in 2021. And that was, that was simulcast through Twitch. They were a partner to the actual event and they were streaming live streaming most of the bands off of one of the stages. And we were on that stage. That stream is available to listen to and watch on YouTube. And I found out after watching the stream that there was an issue with my console that I wasn't able to hear when I was sending it to the stream. So there's a high pitched hum. It's a ground hum through the entire video. You don't hear it on my mix through the PA. It was just on those outputs that I was sending to the broadcast stream. So that was a big reason why I wanted to swap away from that and start doing things differently for broadcast. But I think if it were ever a thing for bands to do that they wanted to do, I bet they'd have to carry a whole squad with them, just like uh, this jam band that you were talking about, because I think leaving it up to a local venue might not ever be a thing that we would see. I can imagine a future well down the line where a band is going from one streaming like broadcast warehouse to a different broadcast warehouse doing some sort of intimate performance that's being live streamed so it's still a concert that's live but it's also being broadcast but i'm not sure about doing shows and concerts the way that we've known and then also those being simulcast unless it's something like a festival or something so i was curious if you guys had thoughts or opinions on that and i know like both of your bands are so dynamic and and the live shows are just an experience that i don't think would probably translate quite as well over a live stream but i had to ask the question and yeah of course forever on that live stream and, and like you said elmo those jam bands do it probably like you because every every performance is a unique it's a unique thing. So uh, I think some of the, some of the things that our bands do, we don't want to show everybody everything. You know what I mean? Their bands are more careful now. Uh, like I said, one, one weird moment, someone misses a note that's being clipped in a six second clip with no context and put on the internet. 
So it's just like, you got to be careful about what goes out and, and it's, it's really just got to be the best of the best. Sometimes you don't have a choice almost. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Welcome to Rockville broadcast story is, is also funny. I had a throw and go for welcome to rock with a band. I hadn't mixed in two years. I was supposed to go the night before and program and uh, Slipknot wouldn't let me in to their security. Wouldn't let me in to program. And then the next day, there was no time on the console. Everyone else was on it. Every band, because it was an S6L, so a lot of people didn't bring their own. Uh, and it was like a pandemic year, so a lot of the bands that were playing it weren't even out. They were just going there for that show. And yeah, just just starting from scratch, loaded a profile, loaded a profile scene into the S6L. And I think we, I think we, I got the last input that I needed maybe twenty seconds after we were supposed to start, and we just went for it. Oh and, man. And yeah, that broadcast mix will live on forever. Uh, True. And it's funny, you can hear it come together as the show goes on. And now that I think about it, some of the songs from the early parts of it have disappeared, which I'm grateful for. But yes, you, sometimes you get put in a situation like that, and then you're responsible for this thing that lives forever and ever on the internet and no one in the comments knows the the context of the situation and the challenges you were up against and and they don't care. So, right. you know, just as important as the phone video, you know, most phone videos will sound better than those live streams. So <laughs> that's all we got. Especially if they're holding the phone correctly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. We have gone way, way, way over our time, but I feel like this could go on for another couple of hours. I say that on almost every podcast, but it's never been more true than it is today. Uh, we're at the end of the year. We're recording this uh, near the end of December. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you guys for your favorite and least favorite tour moments of 2022. Real quickly, what was a highlight and maybe something you wish that you didn't have to experience quite so much? And I'll let you guys arm wrestle to see who goes first. Oh, I'll just give it to Logan. <laughs> uh, well, I started this year as a tour manager and I'm ending it as not a tour manager. Yeah. That's my favorite and my least favorite. <laughs> my my least favorite, the, the first leg of Trinity, or was it the second leg? Second leg of Trinity. Oh gosh, I can't even remember if it was the first. No, it was the first. I'm sorry. The the bus, there was a there was a period where the bus broke down every night in some way for five nights straight. And uh that was very much felt like just constantly behind the eight ball and we're showing up to every show late, sometimes, you know, showing up at the venue at 4 p.m. because of bus problems. And that sucked a lot. And then I stopped tour managing and I stopped having to worry about that and just worry about my mix. And that was really awesome. So, yeah, both the best and the worst moments come from the same thing for sure with me. I think the best moment for me on in the last year of touring was actually a collection of moments playing my nintendo switch on the the big video wall both before the show and sometimes even during the show was just something else it was so much fun being around a bunch of friends that would indulge my my video game small addiction uh and then probably my least favorite it was along the same lines as Logan. There was a, a point in time on either the first or second leg of Trinity of Terror that for Ice Nine Kills, we had a lot of bus problems. I think 
starting with the the end of our rehearsal session when our bus showed up our trailer gate door wouldn't open we had three people on the inside of the trailer pushing with all their might we had two people on the outside of the trailer pulling with all their might and it just wouldn't open because the someone hit the back of the trailer in such a way that once the door closed it had kind of grinded itself into the support so you're pulling metal against metal man it was it was bad that same i think a few days later after that we had our bus break down and the bus had to leave us at a venue that we stayed at sleeping on the floor until about 5 a.m the next day and then we had to load our trailer up at 5 30 and then we made it to the show i think like three hours late something like that those were definitely my least favorite parts of the year was dealing with bus issues, but you got to do it. And we got through it and didn't have to deal with it after it was all finally done. But that's, that's the best and the worst for me. Definitely. Just, just real quick, speaking on Elmo's band's bus problems at one point, they had to swap buses. Me, me I forgot and, about this altogether. We use the same bus company, both bands. And it's, I won't say who they were, but, uh, they're defunct now. At one point, to make it all work, the bus driver for Ice Nine Kills bought a pickup truck with his own money on Craigslist, got the trailer off the old bus, drove it to where the new bus was meeting. I, it was Grand Junction is where we were, but I don't remember the show before that, where he came from. But it was like a seven or eight hour drive. He towed the trailer in this pickup truck he brought from Ke- from Craigslist and within an hour of pulling up at the venue had it sold to some guy at the show dead serious crazy yeah that was that was the 5 a.m load in that was that was what i was doing holy moly i forgot about that altogether what a crazy thing buys a pickup truck brings the trailer sells the pickup truck just awesome so good and he didn't plan on selling it this was just some guy at the show he was like, do you think he'd want to sell that? And we're like, go ask him. And sure enough, they made a deal right there on the spot. He sold the truck. I have to try to compose myself because that's, uh, that's, you can't make up that story. It's so, so good. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, I apologize for laughing so profusely, but that's, uh, that might be the best story I've heard on the podcast yet so that's amazing i think for me the 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 highlight was probably when we were young festival um that was such an amazing weekend i saw both of you guys there got to watch both of your bands got to meet you guys like and really listen to what you were doing but the audiences were just so unbelievably amazing the place was just packed nuts to butts shoulder to shoulder you know there was probably I couldn't even venture a guess how many people were at all of our shows, but it was, yeah. PA was great. Stage was great. The bands all brought it and just killed it. So that pretty much those two weekends were really amazing. Even with the weather, you know, canceling the one day, which was a shame. I felt really bad for people that could only be there on that first Saturday, but it was really, that weather was not to be messed with low light. I think also keeping with theme bus issues, I, I had one tour bus start on fire in Phoenix. Oh, no. Yeah, that was on our tour with um, Asking Alexandria and nothing more. I was doing front of house for a Treyu. We had just sound checked in Phoenix, Arizona. It was like 114 degrees outside. 
our bus was the only bus that didn't get to use shore power. So we had to have our generator running and the driver rightfully pulled the generator out. You know, they slide out on a tray and the generator was outside of the bus, but it was just in direct sun and it overheated. Generator started on fire, melted the whole side of the bus. Nothing was terribly damaged inside of the bus, thankfully, but we weren't able to ride on it for the rest of the tour. So we had to fly for the last five or six shows of that run, uh, which is a little bit of a stinker. And then on the Trinity tour, we actually missed one show uh, because of bus problems, but we spent a number of days uh, down with just bus problems. And I think just is a statement to how busy the touring industry was in 2022, that there were not enough buses for everybody that wanted buses. And as such, the buses were on the road literally 24 seven, 365 and probably weren't getting the maintenance and attention that they needed. Uh, it's just a guess on my side, but yeah, bus, bus problems were, I think the theme of everybody's low lights for 2022. Yeah. Let's wrap it up here real quickly. What do you guys having have coming up in 2023? Um, I know, I sort of know what Elmo is going to be doing. You've got some pretty exciting things coming up, but why don't we start there Elmo and then we'll throw it over to Logan. So for 2023 with I9 Kills, we have uh, some tour dates with Metallica that we're supposed to be doing. I'm insanely excited. Wouldn't even begin to cover what I'm feeling about that. And it's it, the opportunity to mix large shows like that is going to be challenging, sure, but also a lot, a lot of fun. The tour that we're supposed to be doing will run from about April of next year until September of 2024 but it's not a conventional tour in that we're doing a show six days a week, five days a week. It's uh, they've set it up to be a Friday show and a Sunday show once every three, four weeks, something like that. So we're doing every Sunday show with Metallica that they're playing until pretty much the end of 2024, which is amazing. That's supposed to be an in the round type mix where the stage is like kind of like a hockey puck in the center of these larger stadiums and arenas. PA surrounding 360 degrees. I have no idea what to expect. I've never done this before. So that's going to be really awesome to try to do. And uh, I'm sure I'm going to fall flat on my face the first couple of days, but we'll see how it goes. Notoriously, they're a Meyer band. So I wonder if they'll have Meyer Panther or uh, what Meyer PA, or if they'll you know even use Meyer now that Big Mick isn't mixing them. So uh, I just had to interject yeah, that. I'll, I'll have to get back to you on that one. When we did just quick interjection, when we did the first Metallica show that we played, we did three Metallica shows this year with Ice Nine Kills. First one was in February and the other two were in like July or August, something like that. Um, but the first one was, I guess, the day before a Billy Joel concert. So they sublet the PA that was already hung for Billy Joel. And this was my first exposure to knowing that Big Mick wasn't with them anymore. It was Greg Price mixing front of house for them. And I showed up and it was a, a Claire cohesion rig, I think. I don't I could be wrong. It was a Claire rig that was flown. And I said, oh, Metallica's not Meyer. And then it kind of made sense after I was explained, uh, after I was told that they were doing another show afterwards. So maybe it'll be Meyer this next year and the following year. Maybe it'll be something else, but. I'll definitely find out and let you know because the Meyer rigs that we had on the second of the legs of shows, but the second and third shows, those were, I mean, Meyer was awesome. I loved it. All right, Logan, how about you? What does 2023 have in store for you and the the band? 
Um, yeah, just sticking it out with motionless and white all year. Gonna try not to do anything else this year if I can help it. I did a lot of not a lot, but enough extra stuff last year in between that it kind of drove me crazy towards the end. But we do a bunch of stuff in Europe, some stuff with Bring Me the Horizon in Europe in between our festivals and stuff over the summer. We go over to to Europe with Beartooth in uh, March. Uh, And then other than that, it's not announced yet. So I I, I, not only can I not say, but I'm not 100% sure. I mean, there's always only two options, right? You either do your own thing or you go out with someone else. Uh, So it will be one of those two things. But yeah, lots of Europe and just lots of lot lot more big shows with Motionless and just not changing anything, just keeping on what I've been doing. Yeah, and I'll be going out with the Treyu and Bullet for my Valentine. Uh, we leave for Europe on January twenty second, I believe it is, and twenty twenty three, and we'll be over in Europe, pretty much all of Europe, until the end of March. Wow. And then I've heard a couple of rumors about something with a Treyu and another band that I've worked with doing some things together, but it hasn't been confirmed. So I can't really comment officially on that, but I would be excited if that happened. So in, in either respect or regardless of what happens, uh, I'm just really grateful to have met both of you guys and to have been able to spend time with you, learn from you and call you guys friends. And I really wanted to say thanks for joining the podcast. I know we went way over the amount of time that I promised you guys it would take, but I think the discussion was pretty fun and, and uh, interesting, and I hope people enjoy it as much as I have. So guys, uh, thank you so much for being guests, and I really hope that I get to see you guys soon. Man, I love you, Steve. This is awesome. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. This is so much fun. Thanks for having me too, Steve. Appreciate it. And that's a wrap on this episode of Mixmasters. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please be sure to subscribe and then tell a friend. Or maybe leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd certainly appreciate it. I produce Mixmasters on the Allen & Heath DLive system with Sure microphones and a little help from Apple's Logic Pro X and some Waves SoundGrid plugins. One more round of thanks to Merritt Goodwin for the music. And until next time, stay safe and healthy, and thanks again for listening.